For those watching online, we just want to say thank you for joining us. We hope that you feel connected. We do our best to make sure that you feel connected. And uh, you're free to leave comments, even give prayer requests there as you watch. We're so thankful to have you. All right, that's enough. I'm just joking. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, why don't you take them to Matthew chapter 21? You know, um, I don't know if you were here last Sunday, but last Sunday was a, a rare moment where Pastor Lawrence just felt like he, he was making some prof a prophetic declaration, an announcement. And it was a very powerful time. And I just got to be honest, it's tempted when you have to follow that. <laughs> They go, come on, God, give me something, right? <laughs> I'm going to need something, you know. And just realizing that, that I think God is honored most when we settle into how he's made us and uh, do our best to lead and teach from there. And so I just felt like one of the things that can happen sometimes in a culture filled with revelation and that's moving fast is just giving us some stability. And so I just want to look at to the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday passage, and just see what God may reveal to us about that. Uh, so a simple little message. I know I want to, there's moments where you want to flex those homiletical muscles, show that you can really preach, but we're learning that this is not what this is about, right? We're learning that this is about God communing with his people, and uh, we're going to together look at his word. So if you have your Bibles, just take them out to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read a pretty lengthy passage, verses 1 through 17, so just track with us here as we go. First one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what Jesus spoke, uh, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? <laughs> saying to those who probably know their, their uh, Torah better than most, hey, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany to lodge there. Let's pray. Lord, we just bow before your word, and we ask your word to um, do its work in us. Would you meet us deep 
on the deep. We desire to encounter you. Just so speak to us. We thank you that you are here. We ask you to move among us. Lord, we take a moment and ask you to bless Pastor Lawrence as he preaches and teaches today. As he travels, keep him safe. Bring him back to us. Lord, I pray that not only will he pour out into other churches, but may he be filled up and bring back to us all the good things you have in store for us. Lord, we take a moment and pray for our children and our children workers. We pray for our children that you'd give them a heart to know you and to walk in your ways. May they see your beauty. And Lord, for those working, may you bless them and bless their hands. May they know what they're doing deeply matters. And here, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And I thank you in advance. I'm convinced that you so want to meet with us and talk to us. That if you couldn't speak through me, you'd speak in spite of me. And that's where I hang my hope. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed that uh, the Bible is often quite comical at times, particularly with what it chooses to leave out. So you need to know that all the Gospels are usually, or all the Bible, but the Gospels particularly are written for different purposes, but they were never written to give an exhaustive account of everything that happened. Right? As John says, if we were to do that, it couldn't even, it would fill up, there wouldn't be a room big enough to hold everything. So they're just trying to, to highlight certain things. But I want you to pause and think about the way the story starts. Jesus sends two disciples into the town to find two donkeys. Now donkeys are, as the Bible says, beasts of burden. They were used to uh, carry things, haul things. It's, it, it would be like a pickup truck. Like they were designed to haul things. And they, if you had them, you were considered pretty well off. Right? These two disciples are supposed to go into that town and find these donkeys tied up, this donkey and this colt. They're supposed to untie them. Anybody else see the problem here? Looking around, who's watching? They're going to untie these donkeys and they're supposed to carry them out. Remind you that being caught stealing means probably removal of your hands. And they're going to lead these donkeys out. And Jesus' only instruction is, if anybody says anything, just tell them I got need of them. Anybody else? Okay, maybe let me put this in context. Imagine you have a guy who has two pickup trucks right up front. He's got one that he's used for years. He loves. It's this good, solid truck. He's got a brand new truck. Brand new, whatever, Ford, F, whatever, whatever idol you worship, you know. Um, <laughs> I just know once I say Ford, somebody's like, oh, he's a Ford guy. I just knew it, right? Whatever. I'm not just, whatever, new truck. And you're sitting there, and he's sitting there with his friends and admiring his new truck next to his good old faithful truck. And up walk Pastor Lawrence and Pastor Chris. They look in it, and they open the side door of the car, and they get in it, and the guy says to the guy that owns it, what are they doing? And they say, I don't know. All of a sudden, the door shuts behind them, each one in one of the trucks, and all of a sudden, they start hot-wiring it. You know, the skills you learn with the misfit youth. Just joking. Just playing around. Do you imagine? And, the, and it starts up all of a sudden. Now the guy who owns the trucks is really interested in what's happening. <laughs> And as he runs out, all they do is roll down the window and say, the Lord has need of him. And he says, okay. Now, I just want you to imagine, first of all, the generosity of that the owner of those donkeys. You know, there's certain things that God asks of you, tithes and offerings as way of worship. There's some things he may ask you of that all he's going to tell you is, I got need of it. That's it. I want you to give this. Why? I got need of it. And that is explanation enough. That blows my mind. But that's how this incredible story starts. We kind of just read it sometimes like it's sentimental. But here are these disciples who are like, this could go wrong fast. I could lose my hands over this, so we're hoping Jesus is right. 
And they're carrying these donkeys out, and they get out to Jesus, and Jesus gets on them, and in walks, uh, then starts the triumphal entry. Now, again, remember, we kind of covered it earlier. We were just talking about the children coming in. But Rome is sitting there with these two outposts watching this gate. And in walks Jesus. This is unmistakably resembling how a king or emperor would enter a city. Usually with an army following behind them. And behind them, their enemies in chains that they've defeated. And they would walk into a city victorious. Jesus is riding in, and it's very similar, except instead of a war horse, he's on a donkey. This beast of burden, this, this thing that's going to carry our transgressions and our sorrows, right? This, this, uh, this beast of burden like Jesus who will carry our burdens for us. And he, he marches into these people waving the sign of divinic rule, singing, save us now. And all of Rome is paying attention. Now listen, Rome does not care if Jesus claims to be God. They don't care. They're polytheistic. They got thousands of them. Add them to the list. There's only one king and that's Caesar. They don't, they don't, the, the, is, the Jewish people are concerned that he's claimed to be uh, of God. Rome doesn't care. Rome cares because this is about authority and power. Remember, Jesus will stand before Pontius Pilate later on this, the same week after he enters and have the same question about power. And he will tell Pilate, you don't have any power. The only power you have is the power that's been given you to suffer with. How's <laughs> that for a saying? Only power you got, I mean, it's like, you never, never mind. Well, that's for another sermon. But the point is about power and authority. And here he comes in with all these people singing Hosanna. Now, Israel has been waiting. There's been this prophecy that there'd come this Messiah. And this Messiah would come like King David, and he would defeat Israel's enemies. So you're starting to see the whole crowd's antenna perk up. Who is this, they ask. The whole city's in an uproar. Who is this? And they, they haven't quite figured out, yes, Jesus is a prophet, but he's also the son of God. They answer, he's a prophet. But their, their antennas are up. Is this the one? Could he be the one coming to save us, to deliver us from these, these Roman oppressors? Surely this is him. And as if um, to punctuate all of that, not only does Jesus enter in that way, but then he goes straight to the temple where he starts turning over tables. Now, we tend to think as Americans... If the triumphal entry is political, then what he does in the temple is religious. But that would be a false dichotomy because in Israel, the temple was the center of politics and religion. So there is not, didn't cut that nice. So Jesus has made a political announcement. I am king. Listen, the reason why people, Rome wants to kill him again is because he's claiming to be king. So when the Bible tells us we are to confess Jesus as Lord, when, like in the book of Romans, we confess Jesus as Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You confess Jesus as Lord, which means Caesar isn't. It was real. It was practical. It had to do with real power, not just like, well, we're going to, over here, we have such separation of, of uh, politics and religion in our minds. We can say Jesus is Lord, but then expect there to be a good king over here. What, what they actually meant is if Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't, Right? And so here's all of this happening, and then Jesus comes into the temple, and he begins to cleanse it. This is Jesus acting like a king in that authority and power. This is Jesus acting like a prophet, doing what a prophet does, and that is um, put, bring God's word into it, it to confront us in action. And Jesus begins to cleanse the temple. So what we see about King Jesus is two things. We're going to see Jesus' cleansing power, and we're going to see Jesus' healing power. The first thing Jesus does when he's king is he cleanses the temple because what this king is concerned about is restoring right worship back to the people of God. 
He wants to restore appropriate worship. Maybe we want to use that word instead of right. Appropriate worship back to God. Now we have this idea of the money changers and um, those who sold things, and we can get kind of confused on it, but the money changers would actually um, take different currencies, and they would turn those currencies into half shekels, which is what you had to pay uh, to like a temple tax in order to enter the temple. But then they would do it for a huge markup. So you have these people who are basically exchanging currencies for this huge markup in the temple just so people could enter the temple. Right? They're, they're marking it up. Then you have the pigeons. Now this is what's uh, the issue with the doves and the pigeons. In Leviticus, the Bible, God allows um, pigeons and doves to be offered as a sacrifice to people who cannot afford to buy a lamb. So these people would buy pigeons, mark them up in price, and then sell them again at the temple, taking advantage of those who are already destitute in the middle of God's temple, calling it worship. God's got something to say. When Jesus, Jesus has to turn over the tables of the money changers so he can set up the table of the Lord, which will invite the broken and the hurting. The same table of the Lord that he sets up in um, on Thursday of this week that we celebrate as Passover where he invites those to come and partake of his own broken body and blood. The same table where Judas eats too. So when Jesus turns over tables, what we see is Jesus is cleansing the temple and restoring it back to appropriate worship and he's doing it um, by, uh, it was very important, Jesus is not against Judaism, he's against the per version of worship. He's against the profiteering, the commercialization, the exclusivism that come when the people of God have changed worship uh, of God into a way to get ahead. That's what he's condemning and he's doing it passionately. I mean, I don't know what it looked like, but you imagine tables flying, coins flying, people diving out windows. I mean, it was probably pretty static. Now, there's a whole nother, never mind, I was going to talk about Jesus and violence, but we'll do that another Sunday, today's not that day. So Jesus is driving out these, he's asserting his lordship over the temple by cleansing it, by bringing it back. And the truth is, if you want to maybe, I want to try to point this to us corporately and then individually, corporately over the last couple of years, you guys remember a couple of years ago we started talking about how God wanted to give us a reboot, like almost take the iPhone and you restore it back to the manufacturer setting. We sense God was doing something like that. There is a cleansing work that God is doing among us, would you say? As a people, as a church, right? Cleansing us from the commercialization, from the, from the, the programs and the catchy things and trying to remind us that this is not about one person standing in front of a bunch of people, but this is about the people of God living um, faithfully and participating with God and his will being done in all the earth as it is in heaven. Now, all of us are working. So we're, we're going through that personally. I think destiny's done a good job of that. And what we see is the results of that. When God cleanses the temple in his cleansing power and authority, what happens and follows is Jesus' healing power. The blind and the lame come and he heals them. Now again, what you need to know is the blind and the lame were not allowed in the temple. Leviticus 21, I think it's 17 and 18, tells anybody with any kind of uh, deformity at all or any kind of handicap was not allowed in the temple. David didn't allow him in 2 Samuel 5, I think it's verse 8, would not allow those who are blind and lame in the temple. Jesus turns over the table of exclusivism to welcome the outcast and the foreigner so that he might heal them. That's the kind of king that he is. 
He doesn't use his authority for his own advantage the same way the people in the temple were using it. He's using his authority that he might free, that he might heal, that he might restore. And Jesus is teaching us something. Jesus is teaching us that appropriate worship to God is just not about how you feel when you worship God. Appropriate worship of God results in the healing and welcoming of the outcast and the broken. If we worship God appropriately, there will be healing among us. There will be souls restored. The lost and the broken will be welcomed. Jesus quotes from Isaiah uh, 56, I believe. He quotes from Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Well, the next verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 56, verse 8, says, And you shall welcome the outcast and the foreigner, and I will heal them. He doesn't quote it because he's going to do it. You see, he restores the people of God back to appropriate worship, which is about prayer, communion with God, working and knowing God, communion with God, which ends up in intercession, which ends up in healing prayer, which ends up in all kinds of things, the welcoming of the outcast, the broken, the lost, and the hurting. Jesus cleanses the temple with his cleansing power so that he might heal through the temple in his healing power. This is the kind of king that he is. This is what it results in. So we see that Jesus, in this little story, he is king and he is humble. He enters on a donkey. But don't mistake that humility for weakness. Because this same humble king will turn over some tables, will throw out some people. I just wonder if Jesus ever grabbed somebody by the collar, right, in the back of the seat of the pants. and just I don't know that for sure, but I like to see that. But here's the issue. He cleanses to remove the hindrances to appropriate worship. He turns over the tables of corruption and greed and profiteering, exclusivism and commercialism in order to set up the table of the Lord. He restores proper worship back to communion with God, a base in prayer and obedience to God's call or participation in God's will being done. And that's where we see the blind and the lame coming as a fulfillment of Isaiah 56, 8, which foreshadows the welcoming of the Gentiles and the foreigner. I just want you to think about this. There was a blind, there's blind people in Jerusalem that day who would not have been healed if Jesus hadn't overthrew some tables. Now, I'm going to just politely turn this on you. Are you, are you ready? Now, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 22 tells us we are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to consider, does Jesus need to turn over some tables in your soul? Does Jesus need to go in there and toss some things around? I don't know about you, but I, growing up, people used to say, Jesus, all sweet and meek and mild, you know, long-haired and limp-wristed and just nice. But when Je- the times that Jesus has come into my life and just radically changed me, he came in kicking over furniture. He just came in like, I want this, pow, you know, and you're just like, wait a minute. Do we have the courage to say, hey, maybe just, maybe just start here, this holy week. This Holy Week, from now leading up to next Sunday being Resurrection Day and Easter, do we have the courage to ask Jesus to come and cleanse this temple any way he sees fit? Jesus, any way you want to come, any tables you want to turn over. You see, maybe, maybe we have some fears that we've set up, and these fears are robbing us of all kinds of things, stealing from us all kinds of, you know, fear affects and redirects our worship. You begin to, what you fear, you tether yourself to. And when you tether yourself to something in fear, in a weird way, you make decisions with that thing you fear in mind. Does that make sense? That's actually worship. 
When we're delivered of our fears, we tether ourselves to God in prayer and communion with him. And therefore, we make a bunch of decisions with God in mind. Maybe there's some fears that have been set up in our lives and in our souls that have been stealing from us the joy of the Lord, that's been stealing from us obedience to God and appropriate worship, and maybe we need Jesus to come in and kick over some tables. You see, just like the money changers allowed their greed and their, their and before we're too harsh on them, we got to realize, I mean, it, Rome, it was destitute. Rome had been uh, kicking, uh, you know, the people of God in the teeth, so I mean, I'm not making excuses. They still need to be turned over, but you can understand it when its context is some destitute. My point is this, though. Um, In the middle of all that, just like those money changers had their greed and their desire, maybe there's desires in your soul that you've placed above God, above worship to God, and God wants to overturn them. This is what St. Ignatius called disordered desire. We have these desires that kind of get over-desires. They become, they become something we, we, um, we become accept, uh, obsessed with, we focus on. They become a, a desire that we so attach ourselves to, all other desires seem to fade away. But listen, part of being a human being is we must live in the conflict of desire. It's constant. I want to obey Jesus, but I want to play it safe. Well, good luck. I desire security, and I desire to be faithful. <laughs> good luck. Right? As C.S. Lewis said of Aslan, he's good, he's not safe. Right? If you say yes to Jesus, you're going to find yourself in some awkward spots. I remember, it's like Jesus saying, I need you to get farther out on the limb. And I'm like, Jesus, the limb's shaking. And I look over, and Jesus got a hold of it going, I know it's shaking. Would you get farther out on the limb? <laughs> look, we... We, all have the, we can all have these desires that, become, that we place above God, these over-desires, these disordered desires, and we constantly need Jesus to cleanse us, to heal us. Desires like security and wealth or success or maybe just avoiding failure or fears. Do we have the courage to ask Jesus this Holy Week, will you come and just toss over some tables in my soul? There's some things, listen, it's for your good. These things are stealing from you. They're robbing from you. And Jesus wants to heal you. So I'm inviting you this Holy Week. Just remember, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. If you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, let me ask you a question. God's temple is to be a place of communion and prayer. What have you made it? My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it. You're the temple of God. What have you made it? Maybe we need the cleansing power of Jesus to come in. So I'm inviting you this holy week to invite Jesus to do that. What might it look like practically? I'm the guy that wants to know, what can I do, right? Uh, That question's got me in a lot of trouble over the years. But look, um, maybe a way to say it this way. If Jesus is the king who cleanses, Great, that's him, his job. What can I do to cooperate with this Jesus who's king and cleanses? That seemed like a better question than to say, how do I cleanse it myself? I just want you to tell, you can have all these disordered desires and decide you're gonna do something about them, good luck, right? We live with them constantly, right? I mean, again, I wanna lose weight, but I want another piece of chocolate cake. I mean, life's filled with disordered conflict desire, right? Desire that's constantly in conflict. Yeah, act like you have never wanted a second piece of chocolate cake what you guys are acting like <laughs> leave me up here like that not one amen on that all right just show you what do we do well i just want to tell you jesus had the problem 
Later in Holy Week, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. It was a late Thursday night, early Friday morning. And if you remember, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes a little farther into the garden. And the Bible says that his soul becomes deeply distressed, sorrowful and deeply distressed. Deeply distressed in Greek is one word, and it's the strongest word for mental depression. I just want to point this out. Jesus is in the middle of God's will, and he's depressed. I might mess with your theology a bit. He can still be joyful with depression. I don't got time, that's, that's extra, but you know, okay, there. So here's Jesus in the middle of God's will, sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then the Bible says, that was Matthew narrating it. Jesus was deeply sorrowful. Then Matthew says, next verse, and he said to them, my soul is deeply sorrowful and distressed. Why does he repeat it? It seems like it's redundant, unless what Matthew's trying to point out, Jesus confessed it. You see, Jesus has a desire in his soul that's in conflict with God's will, and that's not sin. That's being human. That's where the temptations start. You see, before we sin, we desire to act on sin. So desire is where this thing's kicking off. Jesus, does, he says, Lord, if there's any way you can pass this cup for me, like, I don't want to die. If there's any way. He doesn't know. He's not just saying, your will be done generally. He knows the cross is coming. And he's saying, Lord, if there's any other way to do this, in other words, there's a desire in his own soul that's in conflict with God. And look at what he does. How does Jesus handle it, this conflict? Well, he acknowledges it. First of all, he actually takes them and he leaves the crowd and he goes and he prepares a place. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to be alone. In other words, if we are going to deal with the conflict of desire in our souls, we have to oftentimes make time to deal with the conflict in our souls. The thing that helped me the most about this is just coming to this conclusion. Pain is unavoidable. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Isn't this a feel-good sermon you wanted? Pain is unavoidable, right? You either get the pain that comes from working out, that's soreness, it eventually ends, or you get the pain that comes from not working out, which has no end date. In other words, you have the pain of dealing with the conflict in your soul, which is never fun, but on the other side is cleansing and healing, or you can ignore that, pain, that conflict in your soul, but you're going to get the pain of idolatry. Once you come to the conclusion that pain's unavoidable, now the only wise choice is to choose the one that ends, not the one that always goes on. So we have to schedule time to deal with it. Jesus moves away from the crowd and he goes into solitude with a couple of guys where he confesses it. In other words, there's going to be times if you want to deal with the conflicts that go on in your soul, if you want to deal with the fear, if you want to deal with greed, if you want to deal with your pursuit of security, if you want to deal with it, you're going to have to get away from people at times and say yes to God. Sometimes saying yes to people is saying no to God. He gets away from the crowd to deal with it. He has a couple of people, these select three people, Peter, James, and John, that he confesses this to. He doesn't tell the whole world. He doesn't stand up on Sunday morning and announce it, but he's got a couple of friends that he's going to go to and say, my soul is deeply sorrowful and distressed. I have this conflict of desire in me, and he confesses it. There's this thing going on with me. You know, I desire to be faithful to Jesus, but I sure desire to have a lot more money in my retirement account. And I got a decision to make that I think I'm leaning more towards the money than Jesus. I need some friends to pray for me. Or I'm in fear 
and I'm going to try to micromanage my kids' lives because I'm so afraid of what might happen. And then Jesus meets me there and says, this is a fear, and they're mine, not yours. So Jesus, I desire to give them to you, but I also desire that you don't send them to Africa. You get in there and you scrap it out with them. You have people who are will you can confess these things to. Now, Jesus invites them to pray. They fail that job, so be careful who you invite. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Look, here's the important thing. Here's the important thing. You don't look for perfect people. You look for faithful people. Who do you have in your life that's faithful? That will pray with you. That will be there for you. He confesses it to Peter, James, and John. He's aware of his own soul. Uh, now, that's a skill that you have to develop over time. And honestly, I just gonna, my own experience tells me and uh, experience of helping others throughout the years, you don't just go looking for your soul and find it. You're, you have to give yourself rest and time of reflection and pause. And what you'll find is your soul will emerge and reveal itself. But if you stay busy enough, you never have to deal with it. And that's where busyness may lead you to idolatry. Because you stay so busy, you don't deal with what's going on in your own soul. You know that when you over-desires tend to overplay their hand. They almost feel like compulsions. You almost feel like they're, you have to do this. I, I got to get to work. I got to wake up early. I got to work harder. I got to do this. I got, there's just this thing about it that you know is unhealthy. It's this un, insatiable beast. You can't ever satisfy this thing. It constantly wants more. It's a good sign you got a desire overplaying its hand. Right? It's, it's over-desire. It's disordered. It's out of line. And that's where we can bring that and confess that to God. So he verbalizes what's going on. He confesses it to others and asks them to pray. And then he goes a little further into solitude with God, and he, asks, he petitions God to change it. I just want to tell you, you're free to ask God for anything in prayer. Just know he's free to say no. Ask away. Jesus says, look, if there's any way we can do this, any other way. Now, Jesus is pretty brilliant, and God the Father is pretty brilliant. They might have been able to figure out a different way. But if there was a different way, they probably would have done it, don't you think? So maybe this is the only way. So this is what you see happen when you have a conflict of desire, that you have this desire, he's confessed it, he's brought people into it, now he's praying with the Father, he's asking God to change the, the, the other thing, like I, I, don't, you know, I don't know how this might work in your life, anyway, I'm not even going to, let me put it this way, when you're in conflict with somebody, you can pray that God will change them all you want. Sometimes he might answer that prayer. Sometimes he's going to say, no, nah, I just want to change you. Right? So what does it look like when we have that conflict of desire? It ends with surrender. Jesus says, look, if there's any other way to do this, Lord, let's do that. But nevertheless, nevertheless is a bridge word in English, and it means whatever I just said, or whatever's about to come, is to never be considered of lesser value than what I just said. So Lord, I really would like you to pass this cup from me, but what's always going to be more important than that your will be done. He yields that desire. He names it. He has it in his hands. He can see it. I don't want to do this. But he yields that desire to God. And then the Bible tells us he does this two, three more times. He just continues to repeat this process of prayer and petition and surrender. And we do that until that desire that's at conflict with God's desires, it may not ever go away. It'll lose its teeth, though. It won't have its teeth in you anymore. That's when we know. So if Jesus wants to cleanse the temple and he wants to free you of these desires, what might you do? You might reflect on Jesus in the garden and how he handled the conflict and desire. These are some things we can do. I can't cleanse me, but I can go to the garden alone. I can't cleanse me, but I can confess my sin or confess the desires in me. 
I can't cleanse me, but I can invite people to pray for me. I can't cleanse me, but I can get alone with Jesus and petition him to change my circumstances. I can't cleanse me, but I can yield my desire to God. These are things we can do. Jesus will do the heavy lifting of cleansing us. So he desires, though, to wash us in the water of his word, as the Bible says. He desires that we would present our requests to him, our concerns and our fears. He desires that we have communion with him through the Holy Spirit, that he might give us peace. He desires to work in us, to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2, 13. He's restoring us back to right worship. He desires that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. And therefore, it is very important we understand what you do with your body affects and reveals your worship. This is why, I don't have time for this, this is extra, but this is why worship in the Old Testament is really uniquely bodily. It's connecting the body. They kneel, they stand, they dance, they twirl, they jump. It's, our bodies participate in worship. And the same thing's true in our life. So Jesus wants to cleanse us and restore us to correct worship, which means bringing those desires in order. This is what you need to know about disordered desires. Just because you have a desire that you've elevated over God doesn't mean the desire in itself was wrong. It means the place you put it was wrong. You see, good things can become ultimate things, and when they do, it's idolatry. But good things in the proper place are good things. Good things that God made. So we're looking for these disordered desires that we might present to Jesus. And this text shows us that true worship of God is to be about his business as he works in our lives, but also as he works through our lives to affect those around us. So when Jesus cleanses and restores you, when he cleanses our hearts, when he goes in there and tosses over tables, you know he's doing a work because the first fruits of that will always be a deeper communion with God. You'll notice you pray more. I remember in my early 20s going through an addiction that was um, just disrupting my life. And um, honestly, the, the 12 steps saved me. They were powerful for me. And I knew I was changing. When I woke up one morning, my eyes opened, and the first thing out of my mouth was, Hello, Lord. I knew something was going on because I, I didn't wake up thinking about the fact that I was going to have to fight today. I was going to have to resist. I woke up thinking, oh, you're here with me again. Good, that's good news. See, when God starts cleansing us, you start seeing the first fruits of it in communion with him. But then let's talk about the healing power of Jesus. Jesus cleanses us, though, in order to heal. He turns over the tables of the established order and invites the blind and the lame, the sick, and the broken to come be healed. So you are the temple, and not only does God want to cleanse you, but he also wants to make you a place where through you, he might bring healing to broken people around you. Just as Jesus' cleansing power of the temple led to the place where the blind and the lame came so that they were healed, Jesus wants to do a work in us that our very lives will come a place where as people encounter us, as we meet them, God does, we don't heal people. I can't heal a fly with a headache, right? God works through me in his healing power, and he does more than I ever can imagine. Bringing somebody who's lost and broken and hurting just into the presence of someone who has communion with God will do far more than you realize in restoring and healing them. So God not only wants to cleanse you and heal you, he also wants to work through you to cleanse and heal others. So he desires that this 
that this temple of the Holy Spirit in which we are becomes an agent of his healing power to the world around us because that ultimately is true worship when we're participating with God in his will being done in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. So, maybe we not only need to ask God this holy week, will you come and, is there anything in me you want to cleanse? Any tables in my soul you want to toss over? But what if this holy week we ask Jesus, is there anyone around me you'd like to work through me to see healing come to? Is there a neighbor down the street I might be able to just invite over? Is there someone I run into at work that you might just want to use me for a kind word to encourage, to restore? You'd never know how God may want to work through you. But if we offer ourselves to him, our availability, we might be really impressed and excited about what he does through us. So what I'd like to do this morning is invite you to a couple things. There's this king who's indescribable. I, 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 he's healing. He has authority and power. He cleanses. He heals. He does all of these things. And he's humble, but that doesn't mean he's weak. <laughs> I'm inviting you to consider Holy Week. If you look in your uh, seat, you should see this little thing right here. This has every day of the week, every day of Holy Week, it has a reflection on what actually took place, quote unquote, that week in the scriptures. Does that make sense? If you don't have one, then look on your row because somebody's stealing a bunch of these because there was one on every seat. We're going to turn over that chair. I'm just joking. Um, I, I'm inviting you, would you please, I know we got turned the page, we're committed to turn the page, I encourage you to turn the page. Would you take these though and just pause and there's a little reading on each day about what happened that day and then the passage of scripture. Would you mind just reading that and asking two questions? One is how Jesus might want to cleanse you and how does Jesus might want through you to bring healing to others. So that's the first thing we want to ask you to do is to take seriously our Holy Week reflections together. If we all do this together, it would not only bring unity, but we'll, see, we'll be surprised at what God does. The second thing is this. We'd like to encourage you on Good Friday, which is coming up this Friday, would you ask Jesus if there's anyone he'd like you to invite or he would like you to spend time with that through you he might heal. And then I'd like you to invite that person, whatever, however that might look, maybe at your house, maybe out for coffee, I don't know. But invite somebody, this person to get around a table with you and just share with them. Today's Good Friday, this is what we celebrate. How can I pray for you? You came to mind, I'd like to just pray for you. Or what does that mean to you? And just have a conversation with them. Whether they're lost or saved, right? Saved people need healing, right? Look at you. I'm just joking. I'm going to lighten up a bit. All right, here we go. So those are the two things I'm asking you. The Holy Week reflection, that's taking time personally. Lord, meet me here in the scriptures. Cleanse me, heal me. But asking the Lord, one person, Lord, who through me would you might want to heal? Through conversation with me, through prayer with me, through encounter with me. And then respond and watch what the Lord does. That's actually our, our GP2 RLL. Will you pull that on the screen right quick? Our GP2 RLL, that's God's presence to real life. It's very simple. Would you pray about who to invite over on Good Friday or however you want to meet them and then invite them and just see what God does? They may say no. They may say yes. They may say yes and that freaks you out. Good. Maybe Jesus is turning over that table of fear in your soul and you're going to do something. The pressure is not on you. Jesus heals. My job is the one to just have communion with him and invite people to the table. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I was trying to figure out all the ways I could describe what it means that Jesus is king. And I had a really good list of things going when I realized and remembered years ago 
I heard a sermon by a man named S.M. Lockridge. He was a uh, pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in uh, San Diego, California, from mid-1950s to early 90s. And brilliant man, um, doctor, Dr. S.M. Lockridge. But uh, he had a portion of a sermon where he tried to do the best he knew how to do, describe the, what it means that Jesus is king. And I thought, you know what, instead of me trying to replicate what he did, because that's impossible, I thought I'd let you listen how he describes what it means for Jesus to be king. Would you watch this as the worship team comes? I wonder if you know it. Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well... No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his stolen supply. Well, he's enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. Do you know it? Do you know my king? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a gateway of glory. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. His promise is sure. His life is massive. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you know him? Well, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man 
You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't out live him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimony to agree. Herod couldn't get him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my game. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't even beat him, and he's not going to resign. That's my game. Yeah. Do you know him? He's the master of the man. He's the captain of the populace. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's 